All right, the only announcement that I am aware of tonight is that we're having our deacons meeting and our men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning, uh, this Saturday morning at, at 7.30. And the other announcement is that I got a phone call about three minutes before I was trying to walk out the door today. There are very few reasons that you should ever think that you can call me after 4 o'clock on a Tuesday or Thursday. But if you're Brett Nasworth and you're coming out of death's door, you can do it. And so he, we talked all the way here, or he talked all the way here, which is about 10 or 15 minutes, and uh, gave me an update on his condition. And um, I'm going to restrain from telling you what medicine he took, which was just an over-the-counter thing that a nurse said, well, would you like me to bring something like X over to you? And uh, it really did the trick. I mean, yesterday he was weak. He had he could not maintain oxygen level up over 90%, and he they didn't they thought it'd be another five or six days before they let him out. And this nurse walked in yes uh, this yesterday afternoon and said, "I can go down to the pharmacy downstairs and get this for you." And he said, "Okay, well, let's do that. Maybe that'll help a little bit." And within 30 minutes of taking that over-the-counter medicine, he started feeling better, significantly better. And he just is amazed at how quickly he's turned a corner. He thought he was going to get out this afternoon, but he couldn't pass whatever the little test was as to uh, that he could make it. So that it'll probably be tomorrow. But it's just amazing. He, he came down with this like three weeks ago, and he has been truly at death's door. And... I would say hundreds, maybe thousands of people have been praying for him around the world. It's amazing. Hintz tells me still, after he had his motorcycle accident some 15, 14, 15 years ago, and he was in a coma for six weeks, the number of people that were praying for him all over the world. And see, that's just what the Internet does. You start sending these prayer requests around, and uh, they just go viral. And we pray for these guys, and God answers the prayer. So it's just a... Uh, a real manner matter of prayer for that, and then of course I talked to Alex today, and his dad is is got double pneumonia, but it's just con- restricted to two area small areas in the lower part of his lungs, and the doctors have given him a number of different different uh, things, so uh, he's recovering. Uh, but he's he he could go either way still. He's right on the edge, but I think he's going to get the infusion which is really helping people, and uh, that mono, what monoclonal antibodies, uh, which is what I had, and that made, made a big difference, and I'm not sure. I don't think Brett had that. He had a lot of others. He had a lot, he, there's a point where if you're too far gone, you can't take that. So anyway, we can just uh, be very thankful to the Lord for the way he has worked in, in those uh, two situations, And there's several others that I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks of people within our our body, within our church, friends of the church that are dealing with significant medical issues and problems, and we just need to continue to pray for all these people. And Sandy does a great job keeping everybody informed and sending out uh, prayer requests, but that is a tremendous ministry uh, that we have. And to see the Lord answer those prayers with these people is Truly wonderful. 
So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to get prepared as we get ready to study in Judges tonight, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful that we have you to come to and that we know that you hear us, you answer our prayers, you desire for us to bring every little thing before your throne of grace to talk to you about the issues, the problems, the challenges, the situations that we face in life every day, that there is no issue facing us that's, that's too little or too unimportant because in your omniscience you know every single thing. And Father, we just are thrilled to see this answer to prayer and to see understand how uh, terribly sick that um, Brett was and how he has recovered and is doing so much better and father we just pray that he will continue to be able to rest and sleep and and recover and also pray for his wife Wanda and her continued recovery and father we're just so thankful for all that has been provided for for them in this situation. And we continue also to pray for uh, Ruben Monzone and uh, pray for his recovery, that it, that he won't go get any worse with this pneumonia, but the treatments will halt it and that you will work there. And this will be just a great testimony. Father, we thank you for this congregation in the way that so many of us pray continuously for all these requests that come before us. And we see the answers to these prayers. And Father, we pray for our nation as we go through this horrific time in this nation with this incompetent leadership as they seek to destroy this nation. And we pray that even if that is your will, that we might be steadfast as believers and a witness to others and able to help others with the truth of your word to understand uh, the whys and the wherefores of a nation going into um, coming, going into collapse because of the rejection of the of divine establishment and the divine institutions. And Father, we pray that you might give us opportunities to be faithful witnesses as we shine as lights in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open your Bibles. We're not going to bounce around. I mean, we are going to bounce around a lot. We're going to look at some different passages because, as is so often the case, as we go through passages of Scripture, uh, verse by verse, we come to certain topics that are important to study. And one of these topics is, of course, the role of God the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives today in the church age, and I'm dealing with that on Sunday morning. And now we need to look at, continue our, what we began last week, looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Pneumatology, that is the study of the Holy Spirit, is one of the most neglected areas of theology. And within the liberal camp, that is those who do not take the Word of God to be literally true, do not take the Word of God to be breathed out by God, do not take the Word of God to be authoritative, they often interpret the Spirit of God, these references to the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God in the Old Testament to be simply expressions of some force some uh, divine energy 
uh, something of that nature. And so that is why I'm spending some time talking about the personality of God, the Holy Spirit, and the significance of that, and it affects his, our understanding of his role and his ministry in our lives. So we're continuing to look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We were looking at the first judge who was Othniel in Judges 3, 7 to 11, and his ability to bring military victory to the uh, to Israel over their enemies, this individual named Kushan Rishathaim, who is from Aram Naharaim. Uh, you don't have, most translations translate that as Aram between the two rivers, which is Mesopotamia, the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And he is enabled, he is enabled by the Holy Spirit to bring this victory. And we read in Judges 3.10, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And this word for judging is not a word where we think of judging as, as a role of the legal, uh, legal side, where you have a judge in a courtroom making decisions about sentencing or decisions about guilt or innocence. Uh, the, the role of the judge was really a, a military political leader. In some cases, they, we have examples in, in a couple of instances where they were involved with adjudicating conflicts, but mostly they were someone raised up to lead Israel against their enemies and against the enemies of God. And so that's what it means. He judged Israel means that he led them against their enemies, against uh, Kushan Rishathaim. We don't, aren't given any details, but he obviously raises an army and takes that army out into the field and they defeated Kushan Rishathaim, Kushan of the double evil. And he is, he prevails. That's all that the text says. He prevailed over Kushan Rishathaim. So we have no idea what happened, where the battle was, uh, how long it lasted, how God gave them the victory. We're just given the very brief summary statement. And it was because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And it's very important in studying through these passages, in Judges especially, and we'll see, I'll point out one, one of the differences, but uh, it's, it, this is an external sort of ministry of God the Holy Spirit. He's not indwelling, he's not going inside uh, uh, the individual believers in the Old Testament in this way like he does in the New Testament. It's something completely different, and there's a lot of confusion about that as you read through different theologies, and I've pointed out some of those things. But So we just look at what the Scripture teaches about this, that it uses this preposition on the, on the right here, this preposition al, and this is not going in. That's a different preposition that is just the letter b, b, that is just a, a a prefix attached to the to the word, so uh, that's and that's the same thing when you get into Samuel, in First Samuel chapters uh, 
18, 19, when you're dealing with these evil spirit that God sent to Saul that came upon him. It's the same preposition. It's not in him. We're not talking about demon possession. We're only talking about some sort of external position of influence. So this is what we have here. The Holy Spirit is coming upon uh, upon Othniel, and this is not related to his spiritual life. We're so used to thinking of the role of the Holy Spirit because in the church age he is foundational. He is uh, the sine qua non, the without which nothing, uh, the necessary condition of spiritual li- of our spiritual life, but not in the Old Testament. There were very few people who were actually uh, who actually had this kind of ministry from God the Holy the Holy Spirit. So in Judges we have seven passages that mention the Holy Spirit. What's interesting unlike other books and other references every single of one of these references it is the entire title the spirit of yahweh it is unmistakably clear it is the spirit of yahweh it is the spirit of yahweh every time all seven times it's mentioned it's mentioned here in judges 3:10 judges 6:34 with uh, gideon and notice how it Translated in 634, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, but the, it's not the same, th- same verbiage that we have in Judges 3.10. It's a different word. We'll look at it sometime tonight, and it means to be clothed with. The, the Holy Spirit clothes himself with Gideon. So it's a much more dramatic imagery. Judges 11.10. Notice we skipped over Deborah and Barak. There's no mention of God the Holy Spirit in that episode, or we'll see just the real uh, uh, a couple of other quick episodes with lesser one lesser judge. At first, uh, we have Ehud coming up, and he, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned with with Ehud. So uh, it's important to see this, and then we see Jephthah in eleven twenty nine, and then there are four references to the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, moving upon Samson, Judges thirteen twenty five, fourteen six, he came mightily upon him, uh, Judges fourteen nineteen and fifteen fourteen. So those are the seven references, and they all use that phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, which I think is very important, emphasizing for clarity that this is, it, this is the. Holy Spirit of God. So we started off last time as we addressed this issue about what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I just asked this question, how in the world would a first century Jew understand the use of the term Holy Spirit if there were was no prior reference to him in the Hebrew Scripture? That when immediately we saw, looking at passages in each of the four Gospels, Matthew by, by verse 18 talks about the fact that Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't somebody say, wait a minute, what's this Holy Spirit? Whoever heard, what, who is this? Nobody asked that question because they had an understanding from the Old Testament exactly who the Holy Spirit was. And in Matthew 1, 18, I had other, several other verses. Each one of these Gospels begins with this, with this reference. John the Baptist, uh, 
just announces when Jesus comes down that he's going to come and he will baptize in the future uh, by means of the Holy Spirit. Now that raises all kinds of questions because we know from later revelation that the baptism by the Holy Spirit is unique and distinctive for the church age and that's what sets church age believers apart from all other dispensations. John didn't know that. He just knew that the Messiah was going to come in the future and he would baptize by means of the Holy Spirit but he had no idea what that was all about. He just knew that it would happen not what it was. And Mark, Luke in various passages, talks from the very beginning about the Holy Spirit and John in the first uh, couple of chapters in the Gospel of John talks about the Holy Spirit. And so we have to ask this question, well, who in the world is God the Holy Spirit? Is he a person, an individual who has all of the attributes of personhood, or is he a force? Is this something like you have in Star Wars, that this is just some force of God that enters into people that gives them uh, special strength and ability to do miracles? Um, Is it an influence? That's another idea. Or is it just an idiom for the actions of God? So when it says the Spirit of God came upon them, this is just talking about God the Father coming upon people. And that's what Unitarians will believe because Unitarians do not believe in three persons in the Trinity, they reject the doctrine of the Trinity. They believe Jesus was just a man who at some point was given deity, and they believe they believe that the Holy Spirit is just a force or an influence from God and is not a, a third person. So we look at these various passages, and we have several passages in the Gospels and in the New Testament where God the Holy Spirit is included with references to the Father and the Son. So these are referred to as Trinitarian passages. For example, in the episode when Jesus is baptized, the voice of God was heard from heaven. Jesus is not a ventriloquist. He's in the water, and he's a distinct person, and the Father speaks, and then the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon Jesus. So you have all three members there. Uh, Matthew 17.5 is something similar because God the Father uh, also announces from uh, the clouds, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, but the Holy Spirit's not present at that, at that time. And then Christ's directive to the disciples in Matthew 28.19 that they are to baptize in the name of the Father. No, it's not the Father, comma, the Son, comma, the Holy Spirit. They the, the writer puts these conjunctions in there to make it clear these are three distinct terms and references to persons in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. That emphasizes three distinct uh, characteristics. And in Second Chronicles or Second Corinthians thirteen uh, fourteen, we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. So that's another important Trinitarian passage, 1 Peter 1, 2, God the Father, uh, the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So you have these Trinitarian references, and we've seen these same kinds of Trinitarian references in our study in Ephesians on Sunday morning, and I'll be hitting those Uh, in a few minutes as we go through uh, these notes. So we see that 
that uh, the Holy Spirit has the characteristics of a person. Now, what are the characteristics of a person? Well, the characteristics of a person are that they have an individual identity. Uh, they uh, act independently in some sense. Now, the three members of the Trinity don't act totally independently of the others because of their unity, but they are separate, treated as separate individuals. And they exercise uh, the ability to think. You see uh, their intellectual activity, their thinking. You see the fact that they have will. So they have all of these, these features. And so in John fourteen sixteen, and I covered uh, these last, as we concluded last time, Jesus is praying to the Father, or, or says he will pray to the Father, but this is in John 14, 15, and 16, some of the great, my favorite passages, sections of scriptures, the upper room discourse from John 13 through John 17. Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, the Hebrew, um, Greek word for helper there is parakletos. More modern translations get it. I think it's a little better comforter, encourager. Uh, some translate it counselor. It's, it's a word that the root meaning has the idea of someone coming alongside and helping, enabling someone to, to, to do something. But it's a form of the word as parakletos, that does not allow for it to be translated as as help. It's not someone who's going to give help. Or, or it can't be translated comfort. It, it refers to a person. Uh, it is not help. It's not uh, comfort. It's not uh, counsel. It is comfortor, counselor, encourager. Uh, it is referring to a a person. And then and you have that term used of the Holy Spirit in both John 14, 16 and John uh, 15, 26. And then he is, in John 15, 26, Jesus not only call, calls him the helper, uh, and, but he says, I will send him, you know, he will uh, testify of me, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth, so he is, that's related to his function, his role within the Trinity, and he will testify, he will be a witness of me. So you have the third person masculine singular pronoun, he, talking about a person, and he functions as a person. He's going to communicate information. He's going to be a witness, like a witness on, on a court, in, in a courtroom. He will testify of me. And in... These two passages, it shows that the Holy Spirit exercises will. Now, his will is never going to be exercised independent of the will of the Father of the Son, but it's his will. And after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia. This is Paul and, um, uh, I think it was Paul and Silas, and the Spirit did not permit them. So the Holy Spirit is making a uh, is acting on His own to stop certain activity. In First Corinthians twelve eleven, He distributes spiritual gifts individually as He wills. So this is part of His role as God the Holy Spirit in building, developing the body of Christ. 
John 16, 14, we have these pronouns, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you so he can communicate it and he communicates at will. John 14, 26, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things. So these pronouns indicate it's a person, not an it. And then in John 15, 26, also he will testify of me. I talked about that just a minute ago. We are to walk by means of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 16, which means he is someone we can depend upon or be dependent upon. Acts 15, 28, this is in the midst of what is called the Jerusalem Council. So remember what happens in the Jerusalem Council. You have a huge decision the apostles have to make. Acts 10, Acts 11, God uh, reveals to Peter that he is going to uh, send him to Gentiles to communicate the gospel to them. The Gentiles responded. The Holy Spirit came uh, into the Gentiles, fell upon them, just as he fell upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. So this is showing that Gentiles are now equal with Jews in the body of Christ. So Peter goes home. And he tells the other disciples, and this starts to cause kind of an uproar because now Gentiles are equally included within the body of Christ. Then you have Paul and his journeys, and Paul comes back to Jerusalem, and all the apostles get together to decide, well, just how is this going to work? Uh, what should we, how should we encourage these new Gentile believers? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the law? And they decide, no, they don't need to do anything other than they don't need to uh, be involved in fornication. They don't need to uh, worship idols or to be tainted by idols, and, uh, and they, but they don't need to follow the law. And so as they're making that decision and they work through all of the issues, God doesn't speak to them and say, this is how you do it. He they are working on their own, and they have to reach a decision. This is a great model for how we make decisions in life. We look at the scriptures, we pray, we take all everything into accountability, and then we reach a conclusion, and it is like at the Jerusalem Council, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Now, if the Holy Spirit's a force or a thing or an it, 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 it wouldn't be good to that. You can't talk about a non-person in that language. So this indicates that the Holy Spirit is a person. And so after praying about it, they said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. First Peter 1, 2, again you have the uh, Trinitarian references of the foreknowledge of the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, obedience and sprinkling of the of the blood of Christ. And then when you get, we get into uh, Jude uh, 20, we read, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying by means of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that we pray by means of the Holy Spirit. But if we're not walking by the Spirit, and we're walking according to the sin nature, then our prayers aren't going to go any further than the ceiling. That's why um, the psalmist says that that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And every every ten or twenty years, we got to deal with a group of, of pastors who come along uh, within our ranks and say, "Well, I just don't understand the connection of why we have to confess sin if Christ 
paid for our sins, 1 John 1, 7. And, that's beca- and I, you know, I covered this with our pastors last week, and, and I'm covering more of it this week because it isn't clear how all of these different passages dovetail together. And so some of these guys are new and young, and they're wrestling with these issues, and so we have to show uh, how this all connects. And this is a great passage uh, to bring into, into focus in that discussion. Acts 5, 3 and 4, we see that the Holy Spirit is understood to be fully God by the apostles and a number of passages of Scripture. For example, in Acts 5, we have this episode of Ananias and Sapphira. And if you remember the situation, there, there in the previous chapter, at the end of the chapter, you had a uh, wealthy uh, disciple by the name of, not one of the 12 disciples, but a disciple follower of Jesus named Barnabas. And Barnabas was fairly wealthy, and Barnabas owned land, and he sold that land so that he could give that to the apostles so that it could be distributed among these widows who were having financial problems in Jerusalem, and they needed to be taken care of. And so people said a lot of nice things, and that wonderful of Barnabas, isn't that really, really great? And so some people decided they were uh, a little jealous of that, and they thought, well, we want all that kind of attention too. And, And there's nothing worse than getting your approbation lust involved in giving, because we're not supposed to let the left hand know what the right hand's doing in terms of giving. It's not anyone else's business, and we shouldn't showcase it. I've been in a lot of churches where it has been put on display and everybody knows that everybody's everybody's giving. And I remember one incident, I was in a black church out in California and um, a very well-known black pastor was asked to take up the offering. He pulled out two crisp $200 bills and said, okay, I got brand new $100 bills here. I'm going to put those in there. How many people are going to match me in giving $200? And then he worked it like it was an auction. He said, okay, now $150. Who's got $150? You had a whole bunch of people line up, and they came down and put that in the pot. And then it went to 100 and then it went to 80 and 50 and 25 and 20 and 10 They said, okay, if all you have is pocket change, anybody else wants to put anything in there? So everybody would march down and put, put their offering in, in the plate. Everybody had a pretty good idea of what everybody was making. So, I mean, that's just... That just doesn't fit the biblical pattern. It's between the individual and the Lord. But Ananias and Sapphira didn't get that. And so they um, they came in and they gave some money for the same cause. And when they were uh, questioned about it, they said, well, we, we sold our property and we gave it all to the widows. But they didn't. They were lying about it. They kept some back for themselves, which was perfectly fine. The problem was that they lied about it and not that they kept some back. And so Peter confronts Ananias. He's the first one that comes comes in, and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, Satan isn't the object of filling. Some people have said, oh, this is Satan possession. No, it's not. Satan is filling them with a, with something to lie. He's not personally filling them. I mean, I just don't understand why people can't read and get, come to the right conclusion. Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Now look at what is said. In verse 3, he said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. At the end of verse 4, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. So that means the Holy Spirit in verse 3 is identified as God in verse 4. Very strong passage for the deity of the Holy, of, of the Holy Spirit. Scriptures also ascribe to the Holy Spirit the works of creation the works of regeneration, and the works of resurrecting the saints. These are actions that only God can perform. These are the acts of deity. So we all know, or should know, Genesis 1-2, that the Spirit of God moved on the face of the earth, and we'll have it up on the screen later. But I thought I would show some other verses that when we talk about creation, in Job 26-13, We read, by his spirit, he adorned the heavens. God used the spirit to adorn the heavens in the creation of the stars and the galaxies and everything. Uh, By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand uh, pierced the fleeting fleeing serpent. So that connects some battle with Satan because the serpent is an allusion to Satan, some battle with Satan prior to or at the time of that uh, creation. And then in verse 4, Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me, Job says. The Spirit of God has made me. Any one of us can say that. The Spirit of God has made us, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so this is just talking about the involvement of God the Holy Spirit in the creation of the souls, the immaterial life of every single person uh, when they come into this life. He's involved in regeneration. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and says, don't you know that unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God? And so Nicodemus looks at him with that deer-in-the-headlights look like, I'm the greatest Bible scholar and Bible teacher in Jerusalem and in Israel, and I never heard this, and I don't know what you're talking about, but I've got to fake it. And uh, Jesus said to him, uh, and expanding on it in verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Being born of water is talking about physical birth. And the Spirit is talking about the second birth, which is produced by God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on in verse 6 to explain that that which is born of flesh is flesh. That's our physical body, our soul. Uh, And that which is born of spirit is spirit. That is the rebirth of our human spirit at the instant of, of regeneration, being born again. This is the same thing that is stated in Titus 3.5. It's a uh, ministry produced by the Holy Spirit, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Now, we talked about this on Sunday morning, and it is through the washing produced by regeneration. So there's a connection there that regeneration it, what is part of what happens in being born again is that we are washed, we are cleansed uh, from sin, that positional cleansing that happens at the instant of salvation. 
And then to expand on that and say it in a slightly different way, uh, the English just translates the, the Greek word chi there as, as and, but and can often have the idea of, of that is or even. It's called an ascensive chi. And so the next phrase is just an expansion or somewhat synonymous to the first phrase, the renewing that is produced by the Holy Spirit. So this washing that's produced by regeneration is also, at the same time, it's renewal by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is who is doing that. Now, we don't have the same construction here as by means of. I'm, I'm exp- writing that in a certain way because these are uh, what we call subjective genitives and that this Holy Spirit and regeneration are nouns that relate to some, some action, uh, renewing and washing. And so they, they are expressing the one who performs the action in that previous, previous verb. Uh, so that's, uh, and if you're going, well, I don't understand that, don't worry. Most first-year Greek students don't understand the difference between a subjective and objective genitive either. So uh, that just comes with a little time and, ex- and experience. Uh, Romans eight eleven, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So who raises Jesus from the dead? It is God the Holy Spirit is the intermediate agent who raises Jesus from the dead, and he says, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you as a believer. This is what we're studying on Sunday morning, the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's talking about our resurrection, that when the rapture comes and we, if we are still alive, that's a different story, but God the Holy Spirit will be involved in giving us our resurrection body. But he, for those who have already uh, fallen asleep in Jesus, and that's not referring to those on the back row who have fallen asleep in the middle of church. Uh, those who fall asleep in Jesus are those who have died before the rapture, and then at the rapture they are given their resurrection body, and God the Holy Spirit is the one who does, does that. So the Holy Spirit uh, is identified as God. We saw in Acts 5, 3, and 4. The Holy Spirit performs actions that only God can perform, such as creation and regeneration and the resurrection of the saints. And then we see in a number of passages that divine attributes are ascribed to him. Uh, the three of the most significant attributes of God that distinguish him from any creature are the fact that he is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. He has the power to do whatever he wants to do. Whatever he wills to do, he can bring it to pass. Uh, he is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows what might happen, what could happen, what should happen, and what actually will happen. And he is omnipresent. He is present to all aspects of creation. Often you will find in some theologies that they will use the term the immensity of God that expresses he is an aspect of his omnipresence. So in Romans 15, 19, Paul is talking about um, 
his ministry, and he says that this was done by many, by mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God gave him the power to perform these miracles of healing, uh, giving life, for example, to to those who were thought to be dead, and uh, other miracles and healing, so that from Jerusalem all to, to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So it's the power of the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, and 1 Corinthians twelve eleven, he's the one who distributes all the spiritual gifts to every believer. So you have to be omnipotent to do that, also omniscient. Uh, omniscience is clearly taught in the Old Testament in Isaiah forty thirteen and 14, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him. With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him? Who instructed God? Who taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? For who has known the mind of the Lord? And sometimes this is translated as spirit, but it's, it has that sense of mind. Uh, it, it, it's uh, translated in, in Romans 11.34. It's translated as noose, but it's a quote from the Old Testament, and it is quoting this where it relates to the Spirit of the Lord. His, it emphasizes his knowledge. Omnipresence, Psalm 139, 7 and 8. Uh, Paul, excuse me, David is saying, praying, where can I go from your, your spirit? He's talking about how he can't get away from God. God's omnipresent. He said, where can I go where your spirit isn't already present? Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. God is present to every aspect of his creation. Romans 9.1, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness to the Holy Spirit. These are not phrases that you could use if the Holy Spirit is a um, is just uh, just a force or just an influence, doesn't work that way. So we have a number of, of passages that emphasize uh, this work of the Holy Spirit, especially in the church age. And we've looked at these many times in the last year or two as we've gone through Ephesians. That in Ephesians two eighteen and two. 21 and 22, we see the role of the Holy Spirit informing the body of Christ. To remind you, in Ephesians 2, 11 to 17, it's talking about how God has now made, through Christ's death on the cross, he's abolished the enmity between Jew and Gentile, and we are now together with one another, united in the body of Christ. So he concludes that section by saying, for through him, that is through Christ, we both have access by one spirit, by the Holy Spirit. He gives us access to God, the Father, in prayer. In whom, and then at the conclusion of the section, he talks about the fact that we're one new man, um, one new uh, body, one new building, and one new temple. And in verses 21 and 22, brings in the building and the temple in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together 
for a dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is working to build and complete the body of Christ. So all of these indicate that the Scripture treats the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, as a distinct divine person. So when we get into the work of the Spirit, we see that, the, that there are these role distinctions in the Godhead, that the Father is portrayed as the divine planner. He is the architect, the designer of, of the plan, and it is God the Son who's the project manager. He's the one who oversees the construction of, of the universe, the one who sustains it, and uh, he is the one who personally reveals through the incarnation what the Father is like. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So by looking at Jesus, you see what the Father is like. And then the Holy Spirit is the project engineer who's overseeing the project and making sure that everything is done. He's the one who's down there overseeing the details. He's involved in bringing together the creation and regeneration. Uh, he's the one who brings divine revelation to the prophets and the apostles to reveal his word, and he's the one who enables us to understand God's word. So all of these are part of understanding uh, understanding the role of the Holy Spirit. Then we come to the basic word that is used for spirit. Now, this is one of the things that drives translators nuts in some passages because this, and what I'm saying about ruach, which is the Hebrew word for uh, the spirit, it, I can also say about the Greek word pneuma. If you look pneuma up in a Greek-English dictionary, there are, 12, depending on the dictionary, 12, 13, 14, 15 different meanings for, for pneuma. And within one paragraph, Paul may use three or four different meanings. He may use pneuma three times or four times in each one with a different nuance. And you have to figure that out as you work your way through that. And it's also true in most many passages in the Old Testament. So it has the idea that basic idea is something invisible that moves the air. That's the basic meaning of ruach. So it comes to mean breeze, it can mean breath, it can mean wind, or it can mean air. And all of them have one thing in common, they're invisible. We can't see them, we can only see their effect, but we can't see breeze, breath, wind, or air. Uh, it also can refer to something that is vain or futile. Now, that's interesting because you read pneuma, you think, oh, it's air or it's breath or it's spirit. But it may be saying it's in vain, it's emptiness. So you have to, context determines how words are used, not the dictionary. And you don't go through a list like this and say, which one fits best? That's not the way you do it. You have to start, really understand the context. And we do that all the time. You, as, you and I are basic, our first language English speakers. That's what we know. And we go through this sifting process in our brains when we hear people say things and they use a word that, that we didn't quite expect them to use and we're automatically thinking 
all about everything else that's been said, and from that we infer what this word means. And we do that all the time. And we don't even think about it. It just comes normal. And so this is what you have to do when you're working, like most of us, we don't know Greek and Hebrew uh, that, that well. I've been working through reading about some different things. And, and back in the early part of, this, uh, of the 1600s, when this nation was being founded, the, the Puritans had such a high view of the pastoral ministry that one of the first things they knew they needed to establish was a college. A college not only where they would train ministers, but they would educate they would educate the people in their colony who would be the leaders in the colony. So they founded uh, uh, they they founded the col- Harvard College. It was named for John Harvard, who when who left his library to the the, the school, and that's when it started in the in the sixteen thirties. It was 60-some-odd years later before William and Mary, the second college, was founded down in Virginia. And that just shows you the difference between the folks who settled Virginia and the mentality of the Puritans who settled in New England. They had a high value on education and an, educa- an educated clergy, uh, something that has unfortunately been lost uh, to some degree in recent years. And you had in there in the education of children, because you don't know which which of those kids that are running around uh, is going to have the gift of pastor teacher. So every kid gets taught Latin. Every kid gets taught Greek. Every kid gets taught Hebrew. Because even if they're not going to be in the pastoral ministry, then sitting in the pew, they can be a benefit to the local church because they can read the word of God in the original language. And so everybody learned to read Greek and Hebrew and, and Latin. And that, was, that dominated up until the early uh, 20th centuries. Um, a lot of people uh, here know that you know, Pastor Theme had many, many years of Hebrew and Greek. When he was in high school, he studied Latin. He had three years of Latin in high school. And when he first matriculated at the University of Arizona, which was around... 1933 or 34, something like that. In his first year in the classics department, he learned first-year Greek in Latin. That was normative. You got that. That meant you were truly educated. You knew these languages because, you, and you had learned them. And that was in the early 20th century. In the and when you go back into. Uh, the 19th century and the 18th century, those people were educated. They were well-trained, they, and they memorized enormous chunks of the classics in Greek and in Latin, and they knew how to... And by learning those languages like that and working through them, that taught them uh, various skills in terms of just being able to think about things. And those of us who can't, who have, don't have that experience, can't quite grasp it because we think we do pretty good with our thinking. But we don't. We don't have. When was the last time we had anybody on the national scene that even approached any of the founding fathers in terms of their intellectual ability, their knowledge of the classics, their knowledge of history, the history of law, uh, all of those things that came together in that wonderful uh, founding of this nation? 
Those men were absolutely brilliant. And for the last 50 years, uh, liberals have tried to pull them down off their pedestal, but they can't do it. They should not do it because those men were, were trained like we can't imagine. That's what real education was all about. And when you look at the statistics in, uh, in Massachusetts and, and Connecticut in the mid to late uh, 17th century, mid to late 1600s, um, the, literacy, the lowest literacy rate you had in any of the colonies was about 90%. And that was at Plymouth Colony. And many of them had literacy rates. These towns and villages had literacy rates of 96, 97, 99% because they knew that you had to be able to read and read well to understand the Word of God. And so we need to teach our kids how to read. So it's important to be able to read those words of Scripture and to be educated so, and you have to know these languages. So uh, ruach means, uh, uh, can mean breeze, breath, wind, or air. Second, it can mean something vain or futile. Third, it refers to the breath of God, which supports life. And it's described as, it translates the breath of life in Genesis 6.17. Fourth, it can refer to the human spirit in a couple of different ways. It can refer to just the immaterial part of man, which would include both soul and spirit. Or it can involve that part of the immaterial part of man that enables the individual to understand God and to have a relationship with God and which was lost in spiritual death. So it can refer to the human spirit in that or as, as just the, uh, it can be another word for emotion or for an attitude or a temperament or courage and so you get phrases like, well, the spirit of Pharaoh. And people go, oh, see, was, hey, Pharaoh must have been saved. He had a human spirit. I remember somebody told me that, and I thought, you're an idiot. These words do not always mean the same thing every time they're used. And we have to understand that. You don't just lock them, lock them in, so you have to look at the context and what, it, what it's talking about. In Judges 8.3, it says, Then their anger, this is how it's translated, Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. The word anger is a translation of, of uh, ruach. It, refers to an, uh, it can refer to different emotions. And then we go to the next slide, and it refers to... Um, in terms of the Spirit of God, there are titles which can only be ascribed to God. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Yahweh. And then seventh, it, uh, there's a small number of references in the Old Testament that are pretty ambiguous, and they could refer to God's own presence on the earth. That uh, when God is speaking in Genesis 6 3, he says, My spirit will not abide, because that's the correct translation of the word. My spirit will not abide with man. I think he's referring to himself. I don't think that's referring to the distinct Holy Spirit. But there are various, a few places like that where um, it, it can have that sort of amb ambiguity. So we have passages that emphasize. Uh, the Holy Spirit as the Holy One of God. Now, what time is it? Okay, um, I have time to work through some of this. This is uh, very 
important. How is uh, God described in the Old Testament? I will not ex- execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. So God defines himself as the Holy One. He is the one who is set apart. Holiness is that which mostly distinguishes God from everything else because it means he's a a one-of-a-kind, he's unique, he's distinct, he's not like everything else. Uh, A lot of theologians, I've done this because of the influence of some in the past, that holiness just means righteousness and justice combined, but that's that's not accurate because the root meaning of the word holy can apply to a lot of things that are... Uh, not related to God. Uh, There's a masculine form of the word and a feminine form of the word that refer to the temple prostitutes in the worship of Baal and the Asherah. They're set apart to the service of God, but they're certainly not morally pure. But so holy, the one of Israel, he means there's none like him. He, He is the creator God who is distinct from all of the other uh, gods and goddesses. In Isaiah forty twenty five, God says, To whom will they liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. There's no other like him. So when we come to passages that emphasize the Spirit of God, we have to recognize that this must be part of his, his identity his, his unity in terms of who God is, that he is a plurality, and that plurality is one. It's a oneness that includes uh, multiplicity. When God said in the Garden of Eden, the two shall become one flesh, that's a unity of multiplicities. So we have various phrases that are used to describe the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The first that I have here is the phrase, the Spirit of God, which is Ruach Elohim. And this is used some 16 times in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to give you all 16 references, but just a couple of examples. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this is, it makes it very clear, the spirit who is from God, the spirit who is God, uh, it emphasizes his deity. Exodus 31.3, God is speaking about uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, the craftsmen who were in charge of building and constructing all of the uh, tabernacle. And God says to Moses, I have filled him, uh, Bezalel, with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship. So this tells us that, that the spirit of God has, is, has intellect. First Samuel eleven six. then the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. So those are just three examples of of the phrase Spirit of God. Then we have the phrase the Spirit of Yahweh. Uh, And this is used a number of times, and this is the phrase that is used seven times in Judges, and I've already gone through those verses. Uh, So that's what's there. It's the Spirit of Yahweh, and this is used uh, some 20 
I don't know how, 28 times, I don't know how that got messed up on the font there, but 28 times in the New Testament you have, uh, or in the Old Testament you have the Spirit of the Lord. Then it is called your spirit in prayer to God, uh, referred to as your spirit. Psalm 104.30, you send forth your spirit, they are created. So again, we're seeing another verse that, that attributes creation, uh, some of creation to God, the Holy Spirit. He creates and renews the face of the earth in the same way that, that God, the Holy Spirit, regenerates us and renews us at salvation. In 2 Kings uh, 2.9, and so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you? This is the transfer of prophetic office from Elisha who came first, I mean Elijah who came first to Elisha who comes second. And Elijah says, what can I do for you before, before I leave you, before I'm taken away from you? And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit. And most translations lowercase that spirit, it's an uppercase because it's God the Holy Spirit who gave uh, Elijah that prophetic power. And so Elisha says, I want a double portion. I want twice as much uh, power from the Holy Spirit as you had, which request was granted. Then you have God referring to my spirit, and that's used uh, 13 times. In Joel 2.28, he says, it shall come, and this we read this last Thursday night talking about the day of the Lord. Uh, this was a prophecy in this context. And God is predicting what will happen when the Jews are restored to the land. And he says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And Zechariah 4, 6, which was one of George Meisinger's favorite verses so he answered and said to me, this is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel. He was the, uh, the governor of Judea after they returned from the exile. Not by might, nor by power, but, my, by, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that is an important verse to memorize, that we need to live our lives not on the basis of our might or our power, but by God's spirit. Uh, the phrase his spirit is used in English 14 times, but you have to look at every passage because many of them are talking lowercase h, just referring to a human being, to his spirit, his soul, his immaterial nature, something of that effect. But in eight of those passages, it is talking about God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. Job 26:13. by his spirit, he adorned the heavens. Isaiah 63.10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. This is Israel going through a rehearsal of the sins of Israel and says that Israel grieved the Holy Spirit. Now, an influence or a person cannot be grieved. I mean, a non-person cannot be grieved. A person is grieved, and this is an uh, anthropopathism, uh, describing the fact that they have violated the righteousness of God in their rebellion. Uh, Job 26, 13, by his... Oh, that's a repetition on that slide. Need to fix that. 
Uh, then it's just the term the Spirit. Now, this was difficult because there are a lot of places where it talks about uh, the Spirit of God, and so you have the article with uh, Spirit. But I just was looking for places where it just referred to him as the Spirit, not the the Spirit of Yahweh or the Spirit of God, but just the Spirit. So uh, Numbers 11, uh, Moses says, uh, or God said, he's talking... um, uh, God is talking to Moses, says, Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you, that is upon Moses, and will put the same upon them, that is, the 70 elders that he chose to delegate authority to. Numbers twenty-seven eighteen talks about Joshua. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit. So obviously by using the definite article, it's clear that they should understand who this spirit is, that this is the second person of the Trinity. It's very clear that you have a plurality in the Old Testament, and we'll deal with some more of that next next time. Uh, Ezekiel 3.12, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice saying, Blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. We have the Spirit in numbers of... Um, already covered that that duplicate slide. The Spirit is referred to in the earliest books of the Bible. Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In Isaiah 40-13, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or his, as his counselor has, has taught him. And Psalm 104-30, you send forth your Spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. These uh, distinct references to the Holy Spirit in Genesis and there's also in Exodus show that this is very, very early in uh, the development of the, the canon of Scripture. And then we have various other references that we find in the Scriptures. Uh, Exodus 31.3, which I've talked about with Bezalel, filled him with the Spirit of God. Numbers 11.17, I will take of the Spirit upon you. Nehemiah 9.20, you also gave your good spirit to instruct them. And so as we look at all of these different passages, we come to understand the distinctiveness of God the Holy Spirit, His holiness. He is identified as God. He is identified by his works as doing that which only God can do. And he uh, has all of the attributes of individual personality. So next time, we'll continue to develop this. And I want to look at some passages that you have the same thing when you're studying Jesus. You have passages in the Old Testament that ascribe certain things or they are addressed to God. And then in the New Testament, it's quoted and it's applied to Jesus. Well, you have the same thing in the Old Testament with the Holy Spirit. You have things that are attributed to God in the Old Testament, but then when the New Testament writer is quoting it, he applies it to the Holy Spirit. And so that indicates they understood the Holy Spirit uh, to be God. And then we have to deal with some of the other issues that relate to Uh, things such as prophecy and what happens when the Spirit of God comes upon Samuel and he goes off with the prophets and prophesies with the prophets, passages like that, which we've dealt with in other contexts. So that will uh, take us through a pretty good understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. And again, we're just thankful for the way you're working 
in the lives of people we pray for that they they are being healed and comforted in uh, the challenges they face in life. And Father, again, we pray for our nation. We pray that you would raise up leaders who understand that a nation cannot stand if they have rejected the divine institutions. And as we have lived in the last three, four, five, six decades, we have seen uh, how this nation has turned against the divine institutions. And Father, there's only one hope, and that is to turn back to your word. That's the only way they can learn the value of the divine institutions. And there must be a transformation that comes from the inside out, uh, that everything else is just cosmetic. And it's only if the gospel takes root in this nation again that we can ever reach the level of of freedom and liberty that we have come to expect in this nation, but we have now lost. And we pray these things that you would restore these things in Christ's name. Amen.